So throughout the book of James, um, we're continually being exposed to different areas of the Christian's life that evidently are still compromised with sin and there's a remaining corruption. If we didn't still have the sin issue, then you know why would, why would we have all these letters telling us how to deal with these compromised areas of our lives? Um, so the fact that James is talking about these things means that we're, we're admitting as Christians, we come here because we know that there remain problems in our hearts, in our minds. There's a remaining corruption. So throughout this letter, we're coming to grips with, okay, I, I know I'm saved by Jesus, but I still have some severe problems with my attitude. I'm messed up with how I treat people. I'm reckless with my tongue and my words, so on and so forth. Um, so because of this letter being written in such a way, where James kind of just says it, he, he confronts sin, very similar to how Jesus confronts sin. Uh, because the letter is written in that way, I know that this study through the book of James, um, even from my own personal experience, has been very uh, exposing and convicting to each of us. So every week we've come in here studying through the text, and we're left saying to ourselves, I'm so glad that God's mercy triumphs over judgment, because I do not live up to the standard of Jesus' holiness. I'm not, the kind of Christ, I'm not the kind of Christian that I'm supposed to be. I need His mercy. I need His work in my life for these things to be brought about in my life, for me to be sanctified. I need Him to sanctify me. Um, so I want to remind us all that we have no intention, or we, we should have no intention, and we should have no practice of studying this book in a way that leaves us feeling ultimately condemned or judged, not good enough. Uh, that should not be ultimately our, our um, finished product of this study. Without Jesus, that is all there is to it. Judgment. We're damned and we're doomed. However, we do have Christ. Which makes this study through James life-giving rather than life-killing. So in James 2, verses 12 through 13, he says something that should be so comforting and reassuring to us. He says, Speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what's cool about tonight's passage, James 4, 13 through 5, 6. What's cool about tonight's passage is that James is finally dedicating a chunk of his time to explain some things that he's um, kind of briefly brought up earlier in the book, and I'm referring to riches and possessions. He's only quickly referenced these earlier in his letter. So, for example, in James 1, verses 9 through 11, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So after that, James also mentions riches and poverty in a parable. You remember 
the two people coming into the church at the same time. So you got a rich guy coming in, you got a poor guy coming in. And then James is saying, you guys tend to treat the cool looking people better than the lame people. So that's messed up. You should, you should give everyone the same Jesus, the same love of Jesus. Um, so in this portion we're studying tonight, James is expounding on something he has yet to give a more complete exposition on. Up until this point, we've been left a little bit hanging as to what, what he might have meant in chapters 1 and 2 when, it, when he's talking about riches. So, like, who counts as the rich people? Who counts as, Like, do we count as rich people? Do we count as poor people? I don't know. We definitely don't count as poor people. <laughs> um, but do we count as rich people? So, that's, that's what I'm interested in seeing this text tonight. More of a, of a complete uh, explanation as to who he's talking about and what he's saying and so on and so forth. So... Um, do you remember the analogy that James gives in chapter 1 when he says um, that the word is like a mirror? When we're, when we're confronted with the word, it's like a mirror. He says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forget, forgets what he was like. Here's the key verse, James 1.25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So, I want this to be clear tonight. The Word of God has always taught that Jesus is the totally sufficient one. That we are saved by Him alone, by grace alone, through faith in Him alone. So we say that while also saying Jesus commands commands us. We, we, we say that Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice. He is the king. And uh, because he is the king, we should follow what he says. So some people, you know, they only talk about, well, Jesus is enough, so you can just do whatever you want because he forgives you anyway. That's really a misapplication of what the sacrifice is even for. And there are other people that say, okay, you got to be good. You got to be good. Because, you know, you might go to hell if you're not a good enough person. It's like, well, then that neglects the, the sacrifice itself. So we human beings tend to mess this up where we're like, we don't have the right proportion of these two things. And the Bible is saying both of them at the same time. So we shouldn't be scared when the Bible commands us because we're in Christ and he will bring these things about. Um, nor should we be afraid of focusing too much on Jesus. Uh, we, we can say both of these things at the same time. So... Um, we love the sufficiency and the exclusivity of Christ. And because of Christ, we look to him and we pray. We say, God, Father, make me like this perfect son of yours. I am cut to the heart with conviction. I ask that you bless me by conforming me to look more like this son, Jesus. That's not, that's not legalism. Some people say, oh, that's legalism, that you want to be more obedient. What? I love Jesus more. Uh, that's why I want to be more obedient. Because of what he has done for me, I want to be more obedient. That's not legalism. That's sanctification. That's glorification. One degree, degree of glory to the next. So, um, and look at the promise that we see in verse 25 of James chapter 1. He says, whoever, whoever responds to God's word in this way will be blessed in his doing. Who does the blessing? God does. So what a promise that is. Um, if, we are, if we hear the word and we desire to act upon it, and we say to God, I want, I want this to be a reality in my life, 
It says that God will bless us in this doing. Uh, people that respond to His Word. So tonight, let's look into the perfect law. Not a law that condemns, but a law of liberty. A law that liberates the truth that will set us free. And let's ask ourselves two questions. What does the perfect law show me? And how can I be not only a hearer of God's Word tonight, but a doer who acts? So now let's go to the text. James 4, verses 13 through uh, chapter 5, 6. Here we go. James 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. All right, pretty intense ending there. (laughs) So immediately I just want to point out There does seem to be an obvious difference between verses 13 through 17 and then chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. The verses 13 through 17 seem to be a little bit more brotherly, whereas verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5 are more like you're doomed living this way. So um, I think there there are two distinct audiences, uh, or at least two people, two groups of people being addressed in each of those sections. So... We're going to interact with this text by dividing it in those two sections. So we have chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, and then we have chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So we're going to deal with these as two distinct sets. Okay. Um, So verses 13 through 17 is more like an admonition. It's more like an exhortation, a warning to fellow brothers, and then, uh, or Christians, for that matter. Uh, And verses 1 through 6 are more like, they're more like prophetic they're more, they sound more like Isaiah, where he's saying, like, the judgment is coming, the day of the Lord, and stuff. Sounds more like that. Okay. So, what do you think the main point of the first set is? Chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. What do you think the main point of that section is? Yeah. So, go, let's have our Bibles out so that we can... I mean, see the verses, because <laughs> if not, we're just guessing. So what do you think the first point, or not the first point, what do you think the first set is about, verses 13 through 17? Yeah. Right. 
I think that's a really good summary right there. Only God knows the future. That's a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, God's in control of the of stuff happening. So you might plan to go there on such and such a day and do stuff, but if God says no, then the answer is no. It doesn't happen. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, anybody else? Anything else stand out to you? That's like a ma- major point in this text. Is there a direct command anywhere here? Like, do this. You should do this. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the command is where, is where he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That's a command. You should do this. Yeah. So that's important for us to notice always in a text. Where, where, is there, where is it commanding me to do something as a Christian? Um, okay. Now, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. What do you think the main point is there? There's some scary stuff. But uh, let's take a look there. Um, what's going on in verses 1 through 6? What do you think the main point of that section is? What kinds of people is James talking to? Uh, like what's his point of addressing them? Are they reading? Do you think they're reading this letter? That's a thing I wonder. All right, wh- why would those people be reading this letter? <laughs> like given the, the facts that are said about them. Sorry, were you going to say something? Yeah, that. Like they keep Yeah. They hoard all their stuff as if it doesn't matter what they do. It's just like, well... As it's going to come with them to like... Right. They hoard their stuff as if they get to keep it forever. And as if... The, I'll, I'll add this. As if the bad things they do to other people to get that stuff, they won't be held accountable for that. Yeah. Okay. Good job. Two for two <laughs> on the main points. Okay. So, so my sermon points for today... Because those are biblical. Just kidding. That's like a preacher joke. Whatever. My sermon points for today, they come right out of the text. So the, fir- so the first point is, is verse 15. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Okay, so a short way of saying that is God is the determiner of destinies. God is the determiner of destinies. God determines your destination. God is the determiner of destinies. Therefore, you should say, if the Lord wills, insert whatever, you know, you intend on doing. Okay, so that's one. The second one is, God will destroy the self-indulgent. God will destroy the self-indulgent. That's the second section, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. And so I'm taking that from verse 5 of chapter 5, where he says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts. In a day of slaughter. Who's doing the slaughtering? God's going to do the slaughtering of those kinds of people. That's pretty scary. And uh, the third point is this. God, God designates the correct use of our resources. So look at verse 17 of chapter 4. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. God designates the correct use of your resources. Okay, so we'll come back to each of these points. But those are the three. God is the determiner of our destinies. Determiner, sorry, of our destinies. God will destroy the self-indulgent. And God designates the correct use of our resources. 
Okay, so first one. God is the determiner of our destinies. This is verses 13 through 16. So, can you guys think of somebody in your life that maybe talks this way? Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make and trade and make a profit. Okay, so maybe, you know, maybe not saying trade and make a profit. But does that line up with some kind of attitude you've seen in other people or perhaps even yourself? Does that sound like a real person? I think so. Now look at, look at the second one. Can you think of an example of somebody that talks like this? If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Or people that say, Lord willing. They emphasize and saying, Lord willing. So what I want you to do now, or what I want to do now, excuse me, is to try to help you uh, see versions of yourself in both of these kinds of statements. Uh, you, you see yourself as a man with his own plan, unsubmissive to God, and also see yourself as a servant submitted to God's plan. So first, the first one hopefully will be uh, like a fruitful conviction for each of us. And the second one will hopefully encourage us to build on the attitude we already see in ourselves because of what Christ has done and we should continue to do. So let's look at the first one. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Who in the world talks like this these days? Um, also, what does this have to do with us tonight? Can we, can we relate to this? Um, middle schoolers, high schoolers, and people, you know, not in those states of life. Can we relate to this? Well, last time I checked, yeah, nobody in this audience is a, is a full-on businessman. Which, that quote sounds like it's coming from a businessman. So, does that mean we're safe from the critique of these verses? Uh, not, somebody say, yeah, not exactly, no, you're never safe. <laughs> it's like, um, you should always see, what does it say to me? So here's how I would begin to generally relate to this, to those gathered here tonight. As a middle school and high school teacher, myself, I see, uh, you know, these different stages of life. And, uh, and I see, I see, the kinds of expectations the students have of these stages of life. Now, I'm going to give some examples, but you know, before I continue, I just want you to know I'm not saying that every single high schooler or middle schooler is what I'm about to say. Um, but I do want you to think through these things and think of yourself if there is e any even like a semblance, like a little bit of these kinds of attitudes or mentalities in you uh, or in myself. Okay, so my middle schoolers, because I teach, I teach a seventh grade class, my middle schoolers live like this, and they say, you know, I'm only in middle school, I get a free pass to be annoying, disobedient, immature, and reckless. You know, remember, I'm just a middle schooler, I'm just trying to have fun. I'm, I'm a little, you know, I'm a little too young to be taking life seriously. I'll do that when I'm older. Right now, I want to have fun. That's someone saying, I get to determine what this stage of life means for me. That's what that is. Uh, so maybe you're not saying, let me go and make a trade and profit. You're saying, I want to do what I want right now when I'm in middle school. So I definitely see that attitude in my middle schools. And I know that, that was my attitude when I was in middle school. My high schoolers, who are, they, they, t they tend to forget they're only like a few years older than the middle schoolers. <laughs> so the high schoolers, who are only a few years older, they say, they live and they, and they talk this way. I'm so mature now. And I can, get my, I can get my little girlfriend. I can go to these little parties. I can, I'm so clever and I'm so funny. Uh, and you know, maybe in college or after college, I'll get serious about some stuff. Um, 
you know, the stuff that I should get serious about. But I'm only in high school after all, so I've got some time to worry about responsibility later. Okay, so again, you know, they're not saying I'm going to make a trade and profit. What they are saying to themselves, I'm going to determine what I feel like doing at this stage of my life. Thank you very much. Uh, college students, they talk like this. They say, I'm going to this school away from my parents so that I can enjoy the freedom of this stage of my life, you know, while it lasts. I'm going to get my little degree for my little career. And uh, maybe, you know, maybe I'll think about starting a family when I'm like 30 plus years old. Um, but, uh, you know, now's my time. My 20s are, you know, there's some, some cool years. Um, it's my time to learn to live free and for myself. Uh, so this stage is for me to explore and experiment and self-actualize. So maybe, maybe I'll get serious about Jesus, um, you know, when I like get a wife and kids and stuff. Um, yeah, so, so college people talk that way. Young adults talk this way. They say, I'm out of college now, this stage of my life. It's for me to improve my career, to find, a, to find a romantic partner, you know, let's date for like four years, just have a good time. For, you, know, let's, uh, you know, let's get engaged and then like wait a year for, in our engagement and then when we get married, like, let's get a dog first a year later and then like maybe we'll think about having a kid after the dog and then, oh wait, we're like, we're like a million years old and we only like, got a dog. Yeah, so these are, these are caricatures, obviously. You know, they're really um, exaggerated. <laughs> but I think, I think we can see some, like I said, some semblances of these caricatures in ourselves. That if we let ourselves go, we could end up sounding as ridiculous as these people I made up. So, do they sound some, somewhat real to us? Um, do we relate to these at all? Maybe they're not exactly our thoughts. Um, but I hope, I hope at least we are self-evaluating right now. Do I have my life planned out in such a way that it ignores the responsibilities God has for me now? Have I excused myself from caring about what I should care about now? Have I convinced myself that I have time? That's, that's like what the person in this passage is saying to themselves. I have time to do what I feel like. Uh, is that really the way we should be living? Does it, does it work to live that way? Um, this, uh, the songwriter Matt Carney, he says in his song, Closer to Love, he says, really we're all just one phone call from our knees. Could change in an instant. Uh, so here's the thing. I, th I think it is totally natural to assume that you're going to continue living for a long time. Okay, I relate to that. Uh, I, and I, I, I also don't think James is addressing Oh, you assume that you're going to live longer. I don't think that's like the main point. What he's addressing is that we believe we are totally in control of absolutely everything that's good in our lives. Look at verse 13 very closely. So look at each component of, of what this person is saying. Today or tomorrow. So pause. These people think they can determine when stuff happens. We will go. These people think they determine who we will go. Into such and such a time. So these people think they can determine where the stuff happens. And spend a year. So these people think they can determine for how long this stuff happens. We will trade. These people think they can determine how the stuff will happen. And make a profit. So these people think they can determine what will happen. What the result will be. So let's, let's list that out again. These people think they're in control of who, what, where, when, why, and how. 
This is ridiculous for, for us to think this way. This is, like, this is like Nacho Libre when he's saying, I'm the gatekeeper of my own destiny. We're laughing because that's so ridiculous. And, and that's ironically when he's getting kicked out of the church. <laughs> and he's saying, I'm the gatekeeper of my own destiny. Well, really? Because we're kicking you out. Um, so Nacho Libre is a pretty ridiculous person. Who disagrees with that? Now, James is saying, these people are as ridiculous as that. James is saying, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will do yada, yada, yada. You people are ridiculous. You're ridiculous because you don't even know if you're going to make it to tomorrow. So that's, that's James's point. You are not the gatekeeper of your own destiny. And you sound as ridiculous as not your leader when you say that. So later in this passage, James doesn't just say that it's ridiculous for us to think that way. Uh, he says it's evil and it's sinful for us to think that way. Now, this is a severe problem. Jesus tells a parable. Um, Jesus tells a parable here in uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Check out this parable. He says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I know where to throw my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. So our mindset needs to change on this. James here says, what you ought to say is, as the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. So guess who is the fulfillment of this way of living? Look at Jesus in John 6, verses 38 through 39. Look at the way Jesus viewed his life. He says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. What has God given me in Christ? I don't lose any of Jesus giving my life for him. I get to keep everything truly, eternally valuable. So therefore, what kinds of investments should we be making? I don't mean investments merely um, you know, in, like a, in like a money sense. What types of responsibilities has God given me right now? How do I live faithful, faithfully with what He has given me? I think the issue is a lot, about a lot more than just money. The point is about the very essence of your existence. Notice the question that He asks. What is your life? That question. What is your life? What is it? But actually, you don't answer that question. What is your life? God answers that question for you. Look at what David says in Psalm 139, verse 16. He says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. All the days of your life written in a book, already written by God. God says what your life is. What is your life? Don't answer the question. God answers the question. Well, answer the question if you're going to answer with what God says. <laughs> 
That's why we say, if the Lord wills, or Lord willing. We're talking about any kind of plan for the future. So some people say, well, that's just like a cheesy Jesus Jew, to say Lord willing. Um, you know, not, not to say that some people don't do it in a cheesy way. Okay, If there's a Christian way of doing something that's cheesy, uh, there is. Like, people have done it. <laughs> but this, this statement, Lord willing, this is a vital mental and spiritual shift that can happen in us. If, so if this doesn't happen, we end up living worthless, wandering, as worthless, wandering, whimsical fools, as if Christ is only useful for some positive thinking or some positive improvement to our lives. So reminding yourself that God is the determiner of destinies is a healthy thing for us to do when planning our next steps. God is the determiner of destinies. Even Jesus said this about his own life. I have come down to do the will of my Father who sent me. And what did Jesus do? He did not waste anything that God sent him to do. He accomplished all of it for us and gives it to us freely. So the more we repeat and we implement that phrase, if the Lord wills or Lord willing, into our vocabulary, the more used to that way of thinking we become. Like, you, you won't be okay with saying, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. You'll be like, well, yeah. if the Lord, Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow. It does make a difference. It forces you to think, wait a second. Yeah, God, God is in control. I trust Him with my life. I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing. Those little things go a long way when you start to implement that in your vocabulary more often. God is the determiner of destinies. Okay. Uh, next one. God will destroy the self-indulgent. So that's, look at verse 5 of chapter 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Okay, this section is pretty intense. James is talking about people that have accumulated wealth and success for themselves at the expense of other people. So these are oppressive, even murderous, self-indulgent people. And this part is so intense that we might, we might think to ourselves, well, you know, certainly I'm not that bad. That's really bad. Um, so in one sense, I do agree that, you know, I'm not aware of anyone in here that, is, that has slaves that they're murdering. Um, so, so in that sense, I do agree that that's not, that's not historically true about the people in this room. Okay. Um, so in one sense, it's, you're right. It's not historically true about you that you're as bad as those people. But that would be a bit of a stretch. However, let's ask ourselves the question, is it spiritually true about us? What do I mean by this? You, so, yeah, you might ask, well, Jeffrey, you know, what do you mean historically not true but spiritually true? What is that distinction? Well, I'm, I'm saying what Jesus says in Matthew 5, or at least I'm trying to say what Jesus says in Matthew 5, where he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that if you look at a woman with lustful intent in your heart, you have already committed adultery. Okay. So in that scenario, is it a historical fact that you physically committed adultery with that woman? No. Is it true that you have a spiritual problem with lust after that person? Yes. So that's the distinction I'm making. So the, like the historical fact of you actually doing it in real life, is one, that's one category. Whereas another category is, which is more important because it's just the root problem here, is the sin in our hearts. So maybe you look at these passages and you be like, man, I haven't oppressed any slaves. So why, why should I care about these verses? But ask yourself... Is there, is there a spiritual reality in me 
that relates to this problem that in those people manifested in real life where they actually ended up oppressing and murdering their slaves and stuff. Okay, let's apply those categories. Is it true that we have a spiritual problem taking advantage of other people, neglecting them, abusing them, mistreating them, exploiting them? So I want to do my best to show the truth that I think it's yes um, for each of us, albeit in different and varying ways. Look at Proverbs 1, verses 8 through 19. He says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust king. It takes away the life of its oppressor, of its possessors. Okay, so why does Solomon have to warn his son? Don't join these murderous people. He warns his son because he knows we are all prone or susceptible to falling into this one way or another. The warning is there because it could happen. It's not ridiculous. For sinful human beings to end up there. He says, if they entice you, it might be tempting. Don't consent with them. Why does he have to warn them? Because our hearts are sinful. That's why. The wisdom of the Bible knows us better than we do. And so Solomon is saying, it's going to be enticing sometimes to take advantage of other people. But don't believe the lie. This way of life actually takes away your life if you live that way. That's the irony. If you make all your life about stealing and taking advantage of other people, eventually, in a way of speaking, your life will be stolen from you. At least it feels like you'll be robbed. But in reality, you've never owned anything in your life in the first place. God owns you. For those that are in Christ, this is, this is the greatest comfort, like that song you're singing. This is the greatest comfort. My one comfort, both in life and in death, is that I am not my own. For those that are outside of Christ, it is their foolishness that they seek the life outside of Him. This results in their life being lost, and we are prone to live this life for ourselves. That's, that's the sin of these people, living for themselves. But just a few weeks ago, it was discovered that a reporter, I forgot, I think it was ABC News, um, where she had, she had information on a, a serial pedophile... His name is Jeffrey Epstein, or was Jeffrey Epstein because he's dead now. And it was reported a couple weeks ago where she was saying, oh, I knew about this thing all along, like three years ago. But I, did, but I didn't break the news because they were telling me to not do it. And now I'm so angry that I couldn't get the credit for the story. Not, not angry about the three years of more children being raped and molested. She's angry that she couldn't get credit for the story. That's crazy. That's in our world where, where it's, we're so glorifying that position 
of getting the credit for it. Look how, look how righteous I am for freeing the innocent. It's like, that's why you did it? So you could get credit for telling us the story and not the people suffering? So there, there's another example from our modern day. Is, is it really that hard to believe that someone with a sinful nature would do that, would do such a thing? That they would only think about themselves and not the oppressed children. And I would say, it's not really that hard to believe. Because we are all born with the same sinful condition. So maybe we don't own slaves, and perhaps we didn't, you know, hold information for a serial pedophile. And let him run scot-free for three more years. Maybe, you know, that's, well, not maybe, that's definitely not true about us. (laughs) Um, But we are self-indulgent in our own ways. If we don't like the restaurant we're going to after church, then we won't hang out with those people. If we don't like the music they listen to, then we don't care about their preferences. If we don't agree on the same issues, then we avoid talking to them. These kinds of relationships can only be categorized as self-indulgent. And we're making ourselves fatter and fatter on what other people offer us rather than live in a way where we are offering ourselves to other people. People that live this way are merely making themselves fatter and fatter for God's day of slaughter. It's a very serious problem in the, in the sinful human heart. So we, we need to know really how, how bad it is to appreciate how good Jesus is. So here's the last point. God designates the right use of our resources. So look at, look at chapter 4, verse 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do... And fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the key to understanding the whole teaching of, of uh, this passage. The question isn't, am I too rich? Because, I mean, really, there's always going to be someone more or less wealthy than you. That's not the right question, or the point of this section. The right question is, what should I do with what I have? When Jesus comes down from heaven and gives his life, was he saying to himself, hmm, what do these people have to offer me that I can take advantage of them for? Is that the question he asked? I certainly hope that wasn't the question he asked because we don't offer him anything. <laughs> we have nothing to offer him. Um, so if, if he was just in it for, for himself and, and just scamming people and exploiting them, um, then, then really we have nothing to offer him, like I said. But that's not what he did. He asked the question, what can I give? What can I give? What can I bring people to with my generosity to show them this glory. That's the kind of question we should ask. It's reflected in the gospel. That God didn't wait for people to make themselves worthy of his giving. He gave himself while we were still enemies. Look at Luke 19, verse 11. Luke 19, verse 11. So the question for us is, what do I have and what should I do with it? Luke 19, verse 11. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus. That's a currency. He said to them, Engage in business till I come. Uh, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minus more. And he said to them, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And then the second came, came, saying, Lord, 
your miner has made five miners. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And then another came to him saying, Lord, here's your miner, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And the master said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reap what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And on my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the miner from him, and give it to those who have the ten miners. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten miners. I tell you that everyone who has more, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's the end of the parable. Is it in your power to do what is right? Who determines your destiny? You got the answer, God. Now, let me also ask you, do you think God, the determiner of our destiny, leaves us in a situation where we can't do the thing that he wants us to do? No. God has you exactly at this point of life because he has determined it so. He is the author of our stories. He placed you at this moment in time for his purposes. So ask the question, what is my life? This life I have is God's life. Jesus gave his life for his heavenly father. Nothing Jesus did was in vain. He will enjoy the investments he made for all eternity. And we get to share those with him. Even now in this, in this mortal body. So give your, give your life for the heavenly father. And nothing you do for him will be overlooked or in vain. So long as it's what he wills. You won't lose any of it. You won't miss out on anything. So look at 1 Peter 5, 4-11. This is the conclusion. When the shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being uh, the author of, of your story of redemption, of a, of a world that will be made new and will be totally pure, totally perfect. And um, God, we have no idea what that looks like. Um, but you know it is so good. You know what is good for us, what is right for us. And so I pray that you bring to mind how we are in, we are in positions of power and responsibility to do what is right that you have placed us in. 
that, that you have willed us to be in those situations. And so help us look to Jesus as, as the one who gave his life, gave everything, and kept all of the investments he made. And gets to enjoy all of them forever. We thank you for sharing your riches with us through Christ. And we ask that you make us willing and able and, and actors, that, that we take action upon the riches that you've shown us. That we, that we think, what should I do with the good that you have given me? And how should I serve and bless other people? Uh, so, so we thank you for the spirit that binds us uh, together, that seals us, and uh, that, that will make these things um, more and more so in our hearts. So we thank you for, for giving us a confidence to trust in you with these really big questions. What is our life? What, what am I here for? We don't know the answer, and we want to know how, how you answer those questions for us. So please guide us in our time now as we discuss in our smaller groups. And uh, may, may, may we all be in prayer for each other and loving to each other, not, not in judgment of each other, but in mercy for each other and in compassion and care for each other. I pray this all through Christ. Amen.